Hello and welcome to the Intentional Soul, the home for the highly functioning spiritual types out in the world. It is here that we look at the world and ourselves through the lens of higher consciousness, connecting deeply to who and what we really are. Now, my name is Tom Ross, spiritual teacher, healer, spiritual nonconformist, and I am your host for these conversations. On the Intentional Soul, we hear not only from me, but from people who are living intentionally, openly, and authentically in their world. We'll hear their stories of personal transformation while sharing best practices and tactics to help you get the most out of this game called life. Now, nothing is off limits as we seek to expand ourselves and our awareness and live, ultimately, our most authentic lives. Let's dive in. All right, welcome Dr. Todd May, professor of philosophy and work in economics. And uh, I'm going to butcher this and I apologize, uh, hermeneutics through the University of Kent and the founder of philosophy to you, which is a consulting firm, as I understand. Is that correct? That's right. A consulting firm and public resource for philosophy of work. Awesome. It was amazing seeing uh, your what looks to be just like broadcasting philosophy and the benefits of philosophy into uh, into the public domain. Uh, I think I read a little bit of uh, about that. There been the question of oh, this is a this is something that you know, how are you going to get a job with that? You know, what are the practical applications? And you're like, oh yeah, well, watch this. Here, here I have it. So, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background, and then and then what led you to to the path you're on right now? Sure, and thanks for having me, Tom. Um, this is uh, it's kind of the first time I get to tell a bit of my my life story, but uh, in its relation to academia, what I'm doing now. When I started working in the professional world after graduating from university, I had a, I was fortunate to have a, a nice secure job in the insurance industry that, and I'll be honest, my father, who was panel counsel for a few of the large insurance companies, helped to get my resume in through the door. Uh, and it's way before, obviously, the time where you had AI scanning resumes uh, to find clients and short, make shortlists. But I ended up working for a very well-known, very prominent insurance company and was a claims adjuster. And I was very, you know, somewhat naive, not totally naive, but I was very disappointed by the corporate culture, the work culture, how one-dimensional it was, how unthinking it was in many ways, although it was obviously clever in a lot of other ways in terms of the industry. But just, you know, this is back in the 90s, so talk about corporate culture was very limited very much what it's not like now where they have, they involve personal development. They really take learning and development seriously and organizational development. So I was very unhappy with that particular job. I didn't last too long at that company for different reasons. Um, I ended up leaving after a year and I, I sort of made this promise to myself that if I ever go back into academia to do a higher degree, like a PhD, I'm going to look specifically at the philosophy of work in particular, an aspect of the philosophy of work called meaningful work. And, and as I'm kind of ambitious as an academic or, you know, as a student, I was always a bit of a maverick in many ways. And I thought I'm going to find a philosophical solution to making work meaningful. And so my background, my approach into when I did return to do a PhD a couple of years later, I was drawing a lot on existentialism. So a lot of German and French philosophy and hermeneutics fits right within that kind of sphere of philosophy, since a lot of the hermeneutic philosophers had a direct influence from German philosophers like Martin Heidegger. And uh, so I was building up kind of, a, for lack of a better term, a humanistic way of approaching work that brings the person back into the concern of what it means to work. And I, academia, I was very successful in academia for, you know, I think it was almost 20 years as an associate professor at the University of Kent or I ended my career at the University of Kent, I decided that I was doing some a little bit of small consultation on the side. So there was a department at the University of Kent that engaged in outreach with different businesses within the community. And I was invited to give a couple talks. And then I had a friend who was starting a new company and wanted to get me involved in the side of development of the corporate culture. So I had, I had a lot of opportunity to engage with the consultation side of things. And when the pandemic arose, my wife and I decided to return to the United States to be closer to family. And we decided to both start our own businesses based upon our academic research. And so that's when I founded Philosophy to You, which began as more, more or less a public source for philosophical discussion. 
And then as things started to develop and I noticed that the, the articles or blogs and the, the videos on meaningful work were getting more coverage in, in search engine optimization, I decided to refocus philosophy to solely on the question of meaningful work as it is involved in a meaningful life. And so that's where I am now as a consultant working in various capacities and, and with that kind of aim in mind. So, so what does, what does meaningful work mean to you? And I know you talked about the, there were, you know, German philosophers and existentialism. I'm assuming it has informed your perspective on it, but like if you were going to boil it all down uh, and nutshell uh, to people who don't have an extensive background in philosophy, what does meaningful work mean to you? What did you experience as its absence? And then what are you, what are you committed to here now? I'm very much committed to the idea of improving capabilities, and this comes from a different aspect of philosophy, related to existentialism, but it's called the capabilities approach, and it has a background in ancient Greek philosophy, and it's very simple. It's sort of identifying the core or key capabilities that we all use in our daily lives, and this will depend, and so it'll depend upon the culture you're in, the history you're in, and so there's no hard to find list of what capabilities are, what matter. So it's something that you have to figure out for yourself, what matters to you, what capabilities matter to you. And I'll give you an example of that in a second. But it's sort of my approach to meaningful work is quite simple. It's work should be making us more capable people, not more capable employees, but more capable people. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that if a business can refocus itself and looking at capabilities in this broad sense, then they're going to help people develop. And there's going to be all these knock-on effects, which I know businesses want to hear contributes to the bottom line. There'll be happier employees, which means they'll be more productive. And I, and I, I recognize that, and I think that's very important because obviously that's what executives and HR managers want to hear. But my own philosophical approach is we, we have to turn, we have to flip the way we're thinking. We have to think about work because we spend so much of our lives working as a place where we can cultivate ourselves. And we're doing a disservice not only to ourselves, to the business, but to our whole, you know, lack of a better term, human civilization, if we're treating ourselves simply as a means to an end within a, a limited way of thinking of business profit. So making us more capable people, an example of that, my favorite example of that is the capacity to imagine. And this is not something that a lot of philosophers will spend time on because they think the imagination is something that's not very, it's not grounded in reality. It, it's, it's prone to flights of fancy and can even become pathological if we totally dissociate ourselves from reality. Uh, but the capacity to imagine is really important and you can see its effects in terms of what another philosopher calls the moral imagination. And the moral imagination is simply the ability to imagine yourself in a different situation. And if you don't have that ability to do that, it's going to be very difficult for you to relate to other people, to other cultures, to have, to be empathetic or sympathetic to other people that you don't, you're, with whom you're not familiar. But there's also something that's more grounded in the individual, him or herself. And that has to do with the way you can imagine yourself in a better position than, than where you are right now. So if you lack that ability to imagine yourself as you know, something like a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it might be. And there's, you don't have the resource to do that. You're just going to remain stuck in this kind of niche. And having spent a lot of time in Britain, I think one of the things that really hit me being an outsider as an American was seeing the way in which the social class or caste system works very differently there. And you, you do meet people who very much feel they're a part of a certain social class and they cannot get outside of that. So in America, it's, if you have a lot of money, you can be very mobile. But in Britain, if you're a working class person, and even if you make a lot of money, I'm very rich, you can still be identified as working class in terms of the social caste uh, you're from. And it, it goes to everything with how you eat, how you speak, the words you use and things like that. So if, if in that kind of situation, if you don't have the capacity to imagine yourself differently, then you're really going to suffer as a result of that. So if we can identify the ways we can develop capabilities at a, at a workplace or within an organization, we're not only helping the business, but we're helping ourselves be better at being people and living, as philosophers would like to say, living a flourishing life. Got it. And so, and so when you talk about, talk about like becoming capable people through work, it seems to be a different paradigm. There, there's one school of thought that says, 
I work so that I can then live. And then is, so is this actually kind of like turning that on its head? And it's like, I'm actually, I'm actually incorporating what I am into my work so that I can grow holistically as a, as a human. Is it kind of mashing those two things up versus keeping them separate? That's right. And it's, it's very idealistic. And I by no means want, want the idea of making work a, a component of the flourishing life to be just sort of quickly conflated or reduced in such a way that we just see work like that. And then we, we tell ourselves, well, we got to work because we believe that's part of flourishing life. I, I think that's the ideal to work for. And I think we're very far from it. But and, and so what that ideal means is we become very critical and creative about how we're looking at our current states of work. And historically, well, there's a longer story about this in the history of philosophy. But although, and I'll just mention this, although I take a lot from ancient Greek philosophy, in particular Aristotle, the one limitation of Aristotle has to do with the way he separated. He had very hard boundaries between work and leisure. And leisure was the domain of the aristocrat, basically, within ancient Athens, who had the time and the financial wherewithal to reflect upon things, to do mathematics, to do philosophy, to participate in the uh, the public space of, of the polis in order to be political, as it were. Whereas they had, as an aristocrat, they would have people doing the work for them. So there was very much this slave class slave society that enabled them to do this. So I think it, basically what I'm doing is I'm revising Aristotelian basic components of Aristotle to say, look, we can recover work. There's nothing bad about work as long as we can elevate work in such a way that it helps us to develop as more capable people. But if if we can't do that with work, then there's always going to be this schism between what I want to do in life and what I have to do in work. And I think that's that schism has been plaguing us ever since, well, in the in the West ever since we've been human as it were. Um, okay. Maybe not necessarily the case. There are, there are some, I should correct myself because there are some interesting counterexamples to that narrative or story I just told where um, particularly in the middle ages, you find examples of people who are living kind of they're they're living in a way where they're not beholden to uh, the kind of work schedule or demands of work or working hard in the way that we we are today. I'm fascinated because I think Middle Ages and I think immediately, you know, to your to your point on on European, I wonder how much of of that social uh, caste system is kind of essentially a uh, an evolutionary byproduct of of you know middle age serfdom, you know, in the in, in aristocracy and royalty and uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I you counterpoint that with with, um, let's say, something that's less prevalent in America, where it was like that rugged individualism and westward expansion and go find land. And you could always go someplace new to, to create something else. So when I think about Europe, I think about that, the surf to Middle Ages. What example? Just throw me an example because I'm fascinated. Yeah, I can't give a specific example. I'm sort of drawing on a lot of the research done by the sociologist and philosopher Max Weber, who wrote a very interesting book called The Protestant Spirit, uh, the, the Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And okay. in a nutshell, what Weber tries to demonstrate is the idea that our notion of hard work is good in and of itself comes from the Protestant version or a uh, way of thinking about work. And there's, I won't go into the, the history of, of religious thought that that's behind this, but what it, essentially what Weber notes in making this argument is that prior to that moment in the history of philosophy or the history of thought, as it were, you get examples of people, not necessarily, they may be, they may be serfs. They may, there may be all that bad stuff about the social caste system, but you will get instances within that social caste system where there's not this idea that you should always be working, mm -hmm. that um, work in and of itself, if you apply yourself, is a kind of a valorous effort. It's going to valorize your existence in some way. And so Weber's saying it's not till after uh, the likes of Martin Luther and John Calvin, two prominent theologians of, of the Protestant Reformation, that you really get this idea that if you work hard and you're successful, it's a sign that you will probably be saved. And Weber says, as the West becomes more secularized, you simply lose that religious salvation bit and you get work hard in and of itself as a virtue. And so it's something that we ought to be doing. It's something very much ingrained in the American ideology. You mentioned the rugged individualism uh, kind of thing. And to the point where we think it's ideal to be self-sufficient, and this goes into the idea of, of what I call the myth of the individual. 
Uh, sorry to go off on this tangent, but it's really interesting. No, I was in I was in conversation with um, author historian Greg Crouch about this, and he does a lot of history with the American West. and And one of his uh, peeves is this idea that to be truly a rugged individual, you have to be individualistic. You have to be able to live on your own and rely on no one. And he says, if you look at history, especially in the Western frontier, it was absolutely not like that. What you found were people very much dependent upon each other. You know, the distances might be long between the next house, but you found communities that were very fragile and they recognized this and they knew they had to be dependent upon each other if they were going to survive. So it's not this thing about I'm going to be the individual that can live out in the frontier by myself. And he said, you don't find that. And um, we, then we started going about reasons why this might be the case. And the only thing we could really come up with were these Hollywood narratives that present the rugged individual in Westerns and things like that. But anyway, that, that's a tangent. But it's so that you get these examples and work in, in the Middle Ages. And also something that's slightly outside of that, there's a wonderful book called Stone Age Economics, where anthropologists and other scholars with the economics background, they look at these examples of ancient archaic cultures where we tend to think that life was brutal, tooth and nail, fighting against nature. There's never a moment of rest or respite. But actually what they find is something quite different. They find that a lot of archaic and indigenous societies had an enormous amount of free time, especially when you compare it to how we're living our lives today, where we're working at least 40 hours a week. So they, they would find things to show that people spent several hours during the day just not working. They would fulfill their necessities as they needed, and they would spend time uh, doing other things. So I think there's a lot to combat in terms of the things that we just take for granted and we think are true. We have to be working eight-hour days. We have to be uh, throwing ourselves at work um, or, you know, the kind of thing I, I talked about before in a previous interview. We have to be hustling all the time to try and exhaust ourselves at work. Otherwise, it's not it's it, we, we view it as being worthless in some way i'm gonna i'm gonna hallucinate that we're both gen x in some capacity is that correct are you are you gen gen x uh, as well not not quite no not quite what, so, you, what, so what decade is, is gen x exactly i'm terrible with these kinds it's of uh if you're if you're somewhere between about 43 and 55 uh, okay yeah the, yeah i am gen x then yeah so yep. So, so uh, one thing back to back to meaningful work. Are you seeing this become more and more? So obviously, COVID and work from home and so much of, of what happened to COVID accelerated a process. What seemed to be starting back with the uh, with uh, the millennial generation that came in uh, that essentially came in behind us, uh, putting essentially rejecting in many cases. Uh, you know, we use a term you know hustle culture, and there's a kind of a more rejection of the ideals that uh, that certainly the boomers had and then uh, and then and then Gen X had kind of behind them and wanting more balance or or life focus or wanted to be friends with their uh, with their uh, uh, with their I think I read somewhere that you talked about wanting to know that the ownership of the company or the management of the company is in it with you. Uh, and that's certainly something that seems to be with, with, uh, with millennials. Are you seeing that generationally uh, as well? Is that part of the phenomenon that's occurring? I think the businesses I've worked with certainly have talked about things. I never thought, well, as if I were a business owner, I would never really entertain in the way that they did. So this one particular financial consulting company, uh, was took very seriously this idea of a flat structure. And there's different versions of a flat structure, but they were thinking entirely flat structure where everybody was equal in a certain respect. You know, obviously not in terms of you have your senior management, but they, they really like this idea of throwing everybody together, everybody's in it together. And that way you're going to be more productive. There's going to be more, more uh, bonding within the team. And, uh, but at the same time, and a lot of their younger employees really like this, but in practice, they found it a bit frustrating in other ways because they did recognize that although the company talked about a flat structure, the company wasn't flat in many ways, and, and the company was not really recognizing the ways in which it wasn't flat. So there, I think there is this drive to make things more transparent, uh, more connected to a lot of spheres of life that in past decades, businesses never would have taken the time to do. 
Uh, I worry, and I don't have any hard research on this. I just hear this anecdotally from other business owners, but they, they seem to find that with a lot of the younger generation, they're much more prone to quit more easily uh, at their jobs. And again, I don't, I've, I've just heard this so time and time again. I don't know if it's just a, a repeated idea I hear from different individuals, but um, if, if there is, if that in fact is true, what we're seeing is kind of a knee jerk reaction to the kinds of ideas that we would have grown up with. And certainly the, the baby boomers where you, you're, you're just expected to find work and pretty much stay in that role for most of your life. Whereas now it's, I think there's a lot of, dissatisfaction of trying to find a kind of job or role that fits you. And if it doesn't meet the criteria of what it means to be satisfied, then, then the younger generation just kind of up and leave. So that's good in many ways, but then there has to be a balance to it. And I'm not quite sure where the balance is going to come in from. I don't know if there just needs to be some kind of intervention with the younger generation in terms of how they're educated about what it means to have a working life. But at the same time, that means organizations and businesses have to be ready to change. And it's, uh, and it's a question of whether or not businesses actually think that change is going to be necessary. A lot of businesses won't begin the process of transformation until they realize that some kind of change is inevitable. And of course, some of the businesses I've worked with they don't want to be reactive like that. They want to see what's on the horizon and then think and then think about, is there a way we can change? We can start making this change now before we are in a position that we have to. Can we be proactive about it? So I think we're kind of in that situation right now. Um, I think things have become a little bit more difficult, especially since uh, the economy is in a bad state and recession is likely to happen within the next several months. So I think um, any kind of serious inclination that businesses might have have, have probably been put on the back burner, as it were, because now um, economic survivability is more in the foreground. Yeah, and it's a bit ironic, though, at the same time, when you consider you know the extraordinary cost of, of replacing human capital and training uh, and training human capital. So when you do see this evolution coming down the pipe, you know, it's a wild competitive advantage for a business looking to seeking for a competitive advantage to have a workforce that is stable in place and and happy and thriving, which is, you know, which is what you're talking about with respect to uh, to, to meaningful uh, work and uh, philosophy uh, to you is kind of bringing into uh, the ecosystem. So philosophy to you, uh, if you think about it, you know, is is it right now, are you doing exactly kind of what you had imagined it would be if you go back to your earlier academic career coming out of that, uh, coming out of your, uh, your time in, in insurance? Um, or is this totally different in a, in, a, in a path that you never saw coming? Uh, it's definitely totally different in a path I never saw coming. I, I'll be, I'll be frank. I never, I never, I don't think I ever saw myself on a path. I've, I've been, as I mentioned before, I think I've, I'm a bit of a maverick in the sense that I am actually self-taught. Before I did my PhD, I was teaching myself philosophy and classical economics. And then when I started doing the PhD, then you start going through proper training channels, as it were. But I've never been one to sit still in a career or in a geographical area even. So I'm never quite sure what I envisioned myself doing, but it certainly wasn't this. And even when I decided to do the philosophy chief consultation, things just have not gone as planned. So I was trying to work things out so that I can get a steady consultation base, but that obviously wasn't, it would, it would go well for a few months and then there'd just be nothing. Um, and then luckily I started doing consulting work uh, for my friend's business on blockchain startups. And that was going well for, for several months. And now with the economy, then you get pro- projects just don't come through the pipe, come down the pipeline as, as much as they were prior to um, the economic uh, the economic turmoil that started in 2022. So it's, it's not something I've envisioned. I've definitely had to be flexible about it. And uh, the other thing I lack in terms of a, a characteristic or a capability is patience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, my wife has to constantly remind me to be patient because I'm used to expecting results relatively quickly. And so starting up one's own business is, it t- requires a lot of planning and patience, which, you know, quite candidly, that's not within my personal makeup. So it's been a, it's been a huge learning experience, but uh, very positive, but also very stressful at the same time. 
Yeah, there's kind of a component of faith to it, right? I mean, there's a there's I know that I'm I'm I am putting in the work. There are inputs that are going in, and at some point, uh, at some point in time, there's going to be uh, you know, these seeds that are being sown are going to start are, are going to start sprouting. The network of conversations grows enough to be able to essentially produce a result. Uh, for for somebody with a uh, with uh, say an academic background, you can I can go and I can. I can read, digest, interpret, you know, and then and then conceive of and then produce something. That's all like that's all like tangible, right? And uh, and that the process of uh, creating that uh, that business requires a, a degree of of faith and certainly courage. And I, you know, so you're right now. I mean, in in that in that space of both, right? Where you get to apply courage and faith. Sounds like your wife is uh, is um, an incredible support structure for you. Uh, yeah, have you, yeah, have you been a lo- have you been a lone wolf in your in your development? You mentioned you're kind of a bit of a maverick, or you know, uh, do you tap into support groups, or is it just your wife? Like, what does that look like for you? Yeah, it's so. There's a great. Uh, I was talking to my colleague Sebastian Purcell, and he's the one that um, has the blockchain startup firm. He's also he's he's an amazing person. So he's he's a fellow academic like me. He's an associate professor of philosophy. But he's also he's also a hedge fund manager. And so he's taken a break from academia to set up and run this hedge fund. And I had no idea he had this financial side to him. But anyway, the one the one area that he does uh, for his academic specialization is Aztec philosophy. And he's coming out with two books on that. But we were talking about, you know, so what are some of the ethical components of Aztec philosophy? And, And he finds it very difficult to describe it to people who aren't familiar with it. So we, so with, in my case, since I wasn't familiar with Aztec philosophy, we began with ancient Greek philosophy, since that's one of my specializations. And so we started laying out some of the similarities between those two. But one of the things that stood out from that discussion was there is this Aztec idea that part of the good life, a flourishing life, is to surround oneself with good people. And it seems like a truism, and when, but when he said it, I thought it's actually very difficult to surround yourself with good people because then you have to have a whole process of sorting out what does it mean to be a good person? Is there just one, one type of good person or, you know, how open are the, the criteria that you apply? And I think a lot of times we find good people by accident. And I think if you deliberately look for good people, then I think that, for, at least for me, that would kind of muck things up a bit. But what I've always found is if you take an interest in a particular activity in life, you tend to start to find the people that you trust in relation to that activity. So for me, what's always been integral to my life is kind of outdoors I know you like hiking and and you're in Arizona, so you probably feel this quite a bit when you're outdoors. You can do certain things and you start to gravitate around certain people. And you get to know some people that you don't want to be a part of when you're doing that outdoor activity. And other people think, well, that this is actually a a really good group. And you learn things directly and indirectly from from being around those types of people and how instructive that is. So I've been lucky to have different generations of groups I've met throughout my life and it's kind of the cliche that uh, when, even though these people might've been those you've met many, many years ago, when you run into them, it's like time has never passed, even though you've all of aged, you've lost hair or whatever it might be. But <laughs> there's, there's some kind of direct rapport about what you've experienced with them that always remains front and present and is always, I don't know. It's, it's just the strangest thing. I think everybody's had that experience of, of that kind of relationship. And Aristotle would, I, I venture to say, Aristotle would call that true friendship. He would, he, he kind of gives different levels of friendship and he would probably qualify that as what's called true friendship. Yeah, it could. And there's something also about, about being taken out of, of context of whatever your rote, you know, work or, or thing is like when you're out in, in the wild, if I'm, if I'm on a hike in Mongolia or Kilimanjaro or whatever, I'm having a particular and intense experience that is different from the normal day. And it tends to solidify those connections more. Do you, I think, I, I think I read that you are a windsurfer and, uh, and do you, do you have groups of people that you have that kind of like that tight bond with uh, in, in that circle as well? Yeah, absolutely. I have a wonderful story about windsurfing. I'll just do the highlights real quickly, but it's another example where my wife has been genius. Um, she, she knows I get stubborn, but she just, finds ways she knows she can't just tell me to go do something or try and 
pushing me to go do something because I'll just react and say, no, 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 forget it. So she she always wanted to sail. We, we lived in Britain, and which is surrounded by water. There's, the coast is never far away. But we happened to live by one of the oldest sailing clubs in that uh, country in the, in the, on the coast of, north coast of Kent, which is not too far from London. So she took up sailing, and then she tried to get me into sailing, and I just, I just couldn't get on with it. There's something about the sailboat which didn't feel right for me. But then they, that school also taught windsurfing. And she probably and she and so she made a deal with me. She goes, just finish your sailing lessons and then I will pay for your windsurfing lessons. And I said, okay, that's a good deal. So I, I started doing it and I'll and it's the hardest sport I've ever, it's the hardest sport technically I've ever learned how to do. And it was very frustrating to learn. And uh, and I stuck with it because I'm stubborn and because I wasn't getting it, I thought I I just gotta I gotta get proficient at this. And the school was fantastic, especially the lead, the owner of the school. He was he started teaching me quite a bit. Um, he he said he just said I'm no longer gonna ask you for any kind of tuition payment. Just I'm happy to help you progress. So he was very very supportive of that. And then um, through that, I started meeting other people from the windsurfing community, and it's fantastic. And the, the one thing I'll just say is, if you've ever spent time in Britain or know any in, any British people, it's actually very difficult to make friends with. I know I'm stereotyping, but I think a lot of Americans who or expats will find this true. It's very difficult to make friends with someone who's British, not because they don't like Americans, but because of cultural differences. So there tends to be Americans just tend to be, yeah, we'll make friends right away and everything will be nice. With Brit, with in British culture, you have to sort of weather a certain amount of experience with the other person before they start welcoming you as a friend. And there was one moment where I was with a group of windsurfers and we got done windsurfing and it was such, it was such a great session. And one of the guys that I was friendly with, and but I just never thought we'll, we'll ever be friends. He just came up and gave me a hug and just said, that was fantastic. And I thought that's, that's something an American might do, but not, not a, not a, not a Brit. But so it was at that point that things opened up. And ever since that moment, it was just, I've been a part of that group, even though I'm in the U.S. now. I still remain in contact with them, and we still talk about maybe arranging a trip at some point, going windsurfing together. But we've had a lot of excursions together, and they've been great in so many ways. And the one joke they'd always have with me is that whenever we'd go somewhere to windsurf that was outside our local spot, whether it was in the Mediterranean or some other part of Britain, the joke was, if Todd's with you, one of two things is going to happen. There will be no wind or Todd's going to injure himself. So the first thing to do is find out where the nearest hospital is. And, and I'm, almost every trip I've been with them, I've ended up hurting myself seriously where I'd have to go to the hospital. So <laughs> no <it's>, way. <laughs> but it's great. They're, they're fantastic. And um, and I'm making, I, I have a group here that I don't windsurf as much as I used to, but they're a fantastic group. And uh, one of the guys who runs a windsurfing shop in San Francisco, he was very friendly and sort of introducing me to other people. And he's a fantastic windsurfer and, um, whenever I see him at certain venues to windsurf, he, he's always friendly and telling me local knowledge about the way things work because the currents and tides in the Bay Area of San Francisco are just are pretty insane. They're, they're so strong. So, um, yeah, it's a great group and, and wonderful to be a part of. That's awesome. If you were going to make something up and, and, and think about what you've learned about yourself and what you've learned in windsurfing, how is it applying over into uh, into philosophy to you in this direction that you're uh, that you're pushing into consultatively, taking your life that that passion? What lessons uh, poured over? Yeah, I think. I, well, I'm hoping this is the case. The, the the two are very different kinds of work for me, if I can put it that way. And it always, I think, if anything, it reveals a, a kind of discordance in my personality. And I think my wife noticed this quite a bit. So with athletic things, I tend to be pretty good at in the sense of once I find out what it is I want to do athletically, whether it's a personal best or doing something, I'm pretty resilient at going about it. And I'll set up goals. I'll set up a strategy to get there and usually be uh, windsurfing is a bit difficult because I have a whole list of tricks I want to be able to do. And I told myself, once I get these three tricks, that's it. I'm done. This is fantastic. I've, I've had the trifecta. But of course, the joke is once you get those three tricks, you just start thinking about other tricks you want to do. And so, but it's always, so it's, it's always kind of an invigorating relationship with sports for me. Whereas with philosophy to you, it's a different mix of 
being a former academic, as you as you mentioned, it's sort of, I know what to expect. I got to go teach. I got to go publish. It's a defined world. And then I'm trying to bring all this thought and research into the consultation sphere in my own business. And where I, I just, everything's new to me and I'm learning things every day. And I'm finding it very difficult to find out the path forward. And uh, so I think what I've learned about myself is I have to try and find a way to bring what I've learned in athletics as a practice within doing and running my own business. Because in academic, it was kind of easy. I just knew what to do and I could just sit down and do it. I can make a list of things. Whereas with your own business and consultation, it, it's very difficult to know the way forward. And uh, you talk about sport groups. So luckily I have a, a couple of friends who are career coaches and talking to them and, you know, they, they got me to tell a story about what I'm doing. And they say, well, it sounds like what you're doing is, your business is kind of like a train ride where you have all these things that entice the people to get onto the train, but then when they get to the destination, nothing's there. <laughs> and that was a real eye opener for me. And when they said that it was, and they didn't mean it as a criticism, they meant it to be constructive. And, and when they said that it just rang true. And um, so that gave me something very concrete to latch onto and figure out steps to try and fill as I might with doing something athletic. So I'm still very much working things out. And I think the more I see myself doing this thing in terms of philosophy team consultation and enjoying it, I love working with people. I love talking about uh, philosophical ideas and finding out what people think and, and discussing things in terms of stories and narratives. But the more I do that, the more I realize how uh, distinct and different it is from the life I've lived that's been so familiar in many ways. So it's kind of like it's kind of like starting over again in a very substantial way. And I kind of think at the age I'm at, is this something I really want to do? Maybe I should have stayed in academia, but then I just think I know I, I couldn't have done that. So I, I need, I need something to, to motivate me and to, to renew contact with people and organizations in a different way. I don't know, man. It, it, it sounds like windsurfing. It sounds like you're, you're, you're right in the middle of doing the more difficult, the most difficult thing you've figured out, uh, stumbled into professionally. You're going to wind up in the hospital a few times. And at the end of the day, you're going to learn, you're going to, you're going to have an incredible discipline when you catch the wind, right. You know, and you're in the right spot. So I'm extraordinarily excited for you. So a couple quick hits here uh, for you. Have you considered and what do you think the breakthroughs recently in AI, when you think about ChatGPT, ChatGPT4, uh, like how is that going to inform your discipline and then not just your discipline, however, uh, you know, meaningful work, your actual, like your actual work? W what do you see coming down the pipe with the recent changes? Yeah, it's uh, so one, one of my other areas is philosophy technology and you know, I'll admit right now that as a philosopher of technology, I was a bit on the, the critical side, very skeptical of AI in many different ways, or just skeptical of technological innovation. And in short, my worry is that whenever I think technological innovations outrun our ability to cope with them, not not use them because innovations arise because they have a use, but how we cope with that use is very different because things arise that we don't expect. And so a way I sum it up philosophically is that um, technological innovations increase our capacity in one way, but then remove a capacity or some capacity in another. And that might not matter, uh, depending on the capacities that are at play, but then it might very much matter in terms of our ability to live our lives as humans. And a quick example of that is with the mobile or cellular phone, what you notice is that a lot of people lack the ability to recognize their physical surroundings. And this can be anything from texting while driving, which is an oblivion to physical surroundings, or when you're walking with somebody and you're enjoying the conversation as you're walking, and then the other person's phone rings and or they, they get a text notification and they actually break the conversation or they, they break the immediate physical space in order to answer the phone as if that has more importance. So it's a kind of a weird change in behavior and habits, familiarity and expectations of what people might do. Now with AI, uh, you know, the joke was, you know, Battlestar Galactica, Terminator, Skynet, and these things are actually very much on the horizon as possibilities, especially as new iterations of ChatGPT come out, where they're going to be more like humans in decision-making. Right now, we're obviously not at that point. Right now, ChatGPT is pretty limited 
and what it can do because it can only pull from the data that's already out there. And I don't know if the time parameters changed because I think it was anything before 2021. So if you asked it financial advice on cryptocurrency, you'd be getting very old information on that. And my friend and I, Sebastian Purcell, were doing little experiments with ChatGPT. And one was, the one that he did was great. So he asked, what is, uh, I forgot what it was. What is this philosophical concept, philosophical concept, concept X? And ChatGPT would do a pretty good job of, of explaining what it was. And then he said, what is Nietzsche, you know, the German philosopher, what is Nietzsche's view on philosophical concept X? And it was terrible at being able to interpret the delineation between the concept and Nietzsche's view of it. And then my experiment was something along the lines of what is the Monte Carlo simulation in finance uh, in economic terms? And so before I did that, I wrote my own little piece on what the Monte Carlo simulation was. And what I noticed was chat GPT just bullet points things and that list is probably going to be relevant and accurate. But when you get a human that writes, then they tend not to bullet point. They tend to identify the bullet points, but then they insert the bullet points into a different way of talking about it that might lead to different tangents and you know might be circuitous in some way. But it's, it's a very different way of thinking. And the only thing I can, I can liken it to is if anyone's ever spent time in a bookstore or a library, like a physical bookstore or library, they know that being able to browse the bookshelf I know this is a cliche, but it's a great one. Um, being able to browse is very different from going on to Amazon and then typing in a subject or a title and getting familiar titles because you find that when you're able to browse the bookshelves, you'll find things that you didn't expect to find before in a different way than if you're browsing on the internet or digitally, whatever it might be. And you can sit there and it's just a little bit easier to open a book and just start thumbing through it and finding things in that kind of participatory way that is tactile and engaged in a way, at least for me, that doing something digitally, searching a PDF version of the book is not. Um, I, I think what's coming down the pipeline is, at least is this, I think, and I, I hope I'm right, I'm never right at these kind of predictions, is that as AI becomes more and more developed, it's really going to put an emphasis on human relations and how we interrelate with each other and with technology. So, AI might displace a certain kind of job like coders are very much at risk because ChatGPT is excellent at duplicating code, but it's going to be terrible at trying to interface, if I could use that ugly term, with humans. And it's going to be terrible at trying to understand what are genuine human concerns and addressing those. But who knows? Uh, with technology, anything is possible. In terms of my own work, if that's the case, then there's more of a place for people like me who do soft consultation on uh, on things that relate to human value as they're involved in our daily lives and practices. And I, I think with, I see the tech industry as kind of a, a magnifying glass or a macro, or I'm sorry, it's kind of the, the microcosm where um, tech might be very good, might, it might've been doing very well prior to what's been going on now with the layoffs, but you find that their corporate cultures are lacking in many ways. They're just, they, they lack the human side of things. And whether it's Twitter or what's happening at Meta or Google, uh, they might be very good in one sense, but then they're very lacking in, in other ways that I think maybe in the next iteration of our concerns about work post uh, pandemic, uh, these things will start feeding in. Uh, one, one last thought on this is in conversation with my colleague, Sebastian Purcell, we very much believe that a lot of the data that we're used to playing on, especially economic data and expectations, it's changed a lot because of the pandemic, because the kinds of things we expect now just aren't happening. The kinds of uh, patterns we're expecting aren't just happening. And it's not just the pandemic, but of course, with climate change. Uh, we just don't know what to expect anymore. So that uncertainty is very challenging, and it might be good in, in a way that it allows us, if we're brave or courageous, to really change the way in which we've been doing things so that they can address a fuller range of needs. Awesome. So one last question for you uh, in the back to the topic of, of uh, meaningfulness and, and meaningful work. Um, if you're going to share some, share something with someone listening, uh, longing essentially to to take a risk of some kind to be more of who they are, uh, but they're but they're afraid, and this all exists in the realm of like deriving meaning from what they're doing. Like, what would you tell them? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's two things, and 
I'd like to go back to the find good people because once you find good people, you know, and the only way you're going to find good people is if you put yourself out there and do different things, then you get to see exemplars in many ways, or you get to see qualities that you can, at the very least, if there are qualities you like in that person, there are qualities you can try and imitate just as, you know, every now and then, you know, if with, it's so, it's, so prominent in sports so if you're not quite good at doing something but you meet someone who's good doing something that you want to be good at you just go out with them in windsurfing some of the best instruction is when you get someone who's really motivated and good and then they know you're working on something and then it's when you're going out and they look at you and they say follow me and um, when they say follow me it means they're going to take you out they know the trick that you want to do they're going to do it so you can see it and then that's going to get your moxie up and then they're going to get you to do it. So there's, there's a great move called the forward loop. It's basically a forward flip. You get at speed, you get height, and then you do a full forward flip rotation with your windsurfing kit and all that kind of thing. And it's, it's technically not hard to do as other tricks, but in terms of getting the courage to do it. So imagine you're going 25 miles an hour, you got to go up and throw yourself forward and do a full rotation. So there's a great example of, uh, there's a great instructor named Pitt Pardo who, he basically, t- I told him I want to learn how to forward loop, and and he used to spend his time in Greece as an instructor, and he would come back to Whitstable where uh, I was living because he he was raised there, and he's and he was just sitting on the beach one day. He goes, "Looks like the wind's up. Let's rig, and we'll get you to do a forward loop." And I said, "Okay." So he's we we're doing all this tutorial on land, and then uh, anyway, so th- it wasn't even that windy, but then he was doing these crazy maneuvers, and that just watching that made you realize you can do things differently. So surrounding yourself with good people provides just a, a limitless amount of, of capacity. You know, it's that capacity to imagine that I talked about when you see someone do it, it really expands what you think you can do. And the other, the other thing that I realized as I'm getting older is what's a good compliment to that is knowing yourself and your limitations. Well, and um, because once you realize what your limitations are, and you tell yourself what your limitations are, you know what you're up against when you are hesitant to take that leap of faith. Because why someone is hesitant will not be the same reason why another person is hesitant. So with me, it's going to be very much the problem of um, not, I mean, maybe a lot of people, not wanting to seem to be failing publicly in a way that I'd rather be failing privately. Uh, but then you meet, you know, I had a great conversation with a uh, venture capitalist named Arvind Gupta. And he was telling me his life story about all these failures he had in the public eye and how he learned from that. And he wouldn't have gotten to where he was or where he is now because of, uh, because of those kinds of, of things I did. So knowing your limitations um, helps you to, I, I guess, make more of a strategy of how to go about meeting the risks that you wish you could take. Uh, it's not just belief in yourself, but knowing your limitations when you believe yourself. I'm not putting that very well, but it, I think in my head I had a better well, version. Well, of if, that. if I if I want to, I want to try to parse it real fast, and you tell me if I'm if I'm identifying the thing. So when you're saying when you're saying limitation, are you referring to a limitation, i.e. I have one arm and I want to hit a two-handed backhand is not in my, uh, is, is not in, in, in the realm of physical possibility, or are we talking about limiting belief structures and, and, you know, I know my weakness is I don't want to, as I, I need to look good. I don't want to fail. I don't want to be perceived as wrong. And therefore, because that's operating, I have particular things that I'm less willing to do from a risk standpoint. Now I need to essentially, I need to essentially solve for that. So are we talking about limitation or or like true limitation? Are we talking about uh, more like, more like what you're able to or willing to do based on a set of beliefs? Very much the latter. So uh, limitations with respect to sets of belief, you put that very well. So I think if you, if you can realize what those are, it'll change the way in which you can understand how to take that leap of faith, as it were, how to put yourself out there and and go about doing it. And then it points right back to what you said earlier, which is like surround yourself with amazing people, right? Because if you if you know these things about, if I know these things about myself, then I'm finding my mentors, the people that are going to show me how to do that uh, that that front flip. And I'm surrounding myself by you know, by my crew, you know, that is going to push me to do the things that I'm that I'm able to do or cover for me in the event that it's just not in my bag. You know, then then that goes back to your uh, goes back to that point you made earlier. So that's absolutely uh, fantastic. Um, 
Todd, I appreciate so much the time. Any any parting fast uh, you know fast thought for anything that we didn't touch on that you wanted to hit? Uh, something that I'm always trying to do myself, uh, and it was mentioned by another philosopher named uh, Krista Thomason, who's wonderful philosopher in many respects. But she, in my conversation with her, she just mentioned this idea of learning how to fail well, and I think especially mm-hmm. in America we're taught that failure is just not good. And of course you can't succeed without lots of failure. Everyone from just the everyday athlete to Ray Dalio managing Bridgewater, who talks about his failures and how they were integral to development of Bridgewater. And I just, when she said learning how to fail well, I thought, I just thought, what would it mean if we just learn, we had a whole course as kids, not, you got to succeed. You got to, you got to be the best. But, you know, having that kind of motivation in in a good way, not in a bad way, but also teaching kids about learning how to fail well, which would involve learning how to learn from your failures and learning how to be humble about your successes in life. Because let's face it, everyone's got a massive blooper reel, and it would be great if we could have more blooper reels out there instead of all the successes and why I'm so popular and rich that you see on social media, because I think it would make us a more even-keeled society as a whole. We we just have a better pace about life and a better pace about uh, relating to others. I love it. And, and by the way, the blooper reels always get more views on YouTube. So. <laughs> Todd May, thank you so, so very much for joining us, founder of Philosophy to You, uh, PhD in philosophy. Todd, how can they, how can we reach you? How can how can everybody reach you? Best way is just by my website, philosophy, the number two, the letter U.com, and there's my contact information there. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, here on Highly uh, on the Intentional Soul, sorry, <laughs> the Intentional Soul podcast. Take care. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's been great. All right, this has been another episode of the Intentional Soul Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Remember to leave a five-star review if you found this content of value. And as always, I'm your host, Tom Ross, Master Practitioner of the Advanced Rapid Enlightenment Process and Rapid Enlightenment Process developed by Matthew Ferry. You can reach me at Tom at TomRossTalks.com and the website to engage and be a part of any classes, trainings, or sessions I have going on is www.TomRossTalks.com. Until next time, peace.